I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, James, I got my pot of tea. Already, I'm I'm excited for a big guest joining the podcast again. Do you want to introduce it? You did such a good job last week with Paul. I did. Oh, we just said that you were going to do it. We're well, no, we're happy to welcome. We're happy to welcome to the podcast uh, former Maple Leaf and current Toronto Marley, uh, Rich Clune. So, thanks for joining us, Rich. Hey guys, how you doing? We are uh, we're making do. I got two little kids in the house, which is an adventure when you're stuck inside every day, but. Uh, you know what? We're staying safe. How about you, Jonas? How you doing? I'm good. I'm like starting to feel optimistic. Like, I don't know how you guys have dealt with this. It's like you don't want to get too optimistic, but when there are like signs of things getting back to normal, even just like the weather when it's sunny outside, you kind of feel more energized. You, yeah, you kind of get sure. excited for the day. Like Rich, what's this been like for you? Well, I could say the first three days were brutal we were i'll just take you back through my timeline we were coming back from a road trip we were in we were in bridgeport connecticut and we had played a morning game or an afternoon game against the sound tigers in an empty arena and that's when essentially everything started to hit like the mainstream media and nobody really knew what was going on and um the next day we were scheduled to bus to Hershey, Pennsylvania for a game the following day. And they just kept pushing our bus or yeah, they kept pushing our bus time back because there was a call with the league and and I think the managers around 1 PM and essentially they basically said, you know, head to the border as quick as you can and, and get back to Canada. So we got back, I think on March 12th, got back around midnight and, um, 
I hit a 24 hour grocery store up on Danforth Sobeys just cause I kind of, I kind of had like an inkling that that shit was going to hit the fan and toilet paper was going to start flying off the shelves. <laughs> um, my first three days were brutal. I mean, I don't do well without a schedule. I mean, unless I'm on vacation, you know, and, and that's kind of like a conscious, a conscious move by me to like, you know, check out and get off the grid for a few days. Um, I slept in and I just, it, there was so much uncertainty. I didn't know really what was going on. And then we had a conference call with the Leafs and the Marlies just kind of as a whole. And they basically spelled out like the, the quarantine guidelines and how, you know, it's a very fluid situation. Nobody can really predict what's going to happen. And they just, you know, basically encourage us all to, you know, self-quarantine. Um, and then I think it became a law by Ontario that you had to 14-day quarantine anyway. So we were kind of ahead of the game. But I don't know. I just kind of after after a few days, I I just went back to basics. Like I, you know, I started making a schedule for myself the night before when I would wake up, and you know, very like task oriented, listed off things that I wanted to get done, and and I uh, just kind of rolled from there, and then fell into a routine and just made the best of it. So I mean, you know, I'm in the same boat as everybody. Like I want my I want my freedom and I want to go back to, back to work, back to socializing. And, but you know, there's just so much at stake and it's such a, it's such a global issue that we, you know, there's, we're all in it together. How have you guys been? We've been, we've been grinding. That's, that's kind of, I imagine it's gotta be interesting with young kids. James. Yeah. It's not, that's the uh, thing I do miss. Like, sorry. I mean, like, it's, you know, I just turned 33 and it's obviously all my own decisions, but when, when the, when a pandemic hits and, you know, I, I live alone down on the beach, which is, you know, it's, it's got its benefits too, but I could see how, you know, having like a, a little tribe to, to kind of hang out with would be fun. Yeah. And you know, what's weird is that this pandemic lifestyle is not that much different than my normal life because the kids are so demanding and all encompassing that, that most of what I do is work and see the kids. And that's like, there's not a lot of socializing. There's not a lot of, the only difference is that now I'm not going to games and I'm not traveling and I'm not seeing my coworkers and, but, but the family stuff is sort of normal. It's just, it's just hard on little kids because they go to the playground and they see the playground and you say, you can't touch it. My daughter's, she's not even two yet. And she like breaks down crying. I want to go on the slide or whatever. And it's just, um, it's not normal to have them not interact with other little kids. It's not normal for them. It's yeah. really hard to get them the right physical activity that they need. Mm-hmm. It's hard to stimulate their mind enough that they sleep properly at night. Yeah. Um, it's they're in such a developmental phase. My, my daughter's almost two and my son's five. They're in such a developmental phase where it's just very unnatural putting them in, in this position. And um, so it's, it's, it's been hard on them, you know, and I, yeah, I can I imagine. Hope. I mean, I, uh, I know that, like, what I, I think it was kind of counterintuitive. I started looking into like ECE, early childhood education, um, and I, from what I've gathered and what I've read, it's like the brain develops most when it's surrounded by um, a community and like constant stimulation from other kids and and other influences. Whereas, like when I'm at, when I was younger, it's like you know they had 
you know, you see, I had like a couple friends that were homeschooled and I always thought like, wow, they must, they must be so smart and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, it, it's a double-edged sword because if you shelter a young kid and put up a bunch of restrictions on them, you know, it can, it can really impact them. So I understand where you're coming from when you say that. Yeah. Apparently like the social building kind of your social identity and learning how to interact with, with other human beings is, it's so important with, with people your own age and my kids just can't do that right now. So it's, Mm -hmm. um, hopefully that, hopefully there's no lasting effects, not just on my kids, but just on kids in general, you know, the schools being closed and, you know, I have friends who have kids who are 16, 17 years old and they're having like their high school graduation canceled. They're missing a huge percentage of their, of their last year of high school. They're not able to see their friends before they're going to go off to college in the fall, hopefully. And I, I guess like psychologically on 16 and 17 year olds, you're stuck at home with your parents, which is the last thing you want when you're that age. Um, apparently it's been really, really difficult for people that have kids that age. So I wouldn't say that my kids are at the worst age for this, but it's also, it has not been easy. Yeah. Well, Rich, can I just ask you first, I, I do want to know why you were looking into early, early childhood education, but I'm curious, what was it like the empty arena playing in an empty arena? <laughs> um, well, it may come come a shock to some of you, but I actually wasn't uh, playing in that game. Um, you know, they were they were uh, load managing managing me, so <laughs> I had the had the day off, and um, it was like Bridgeport. Uh, I played in that division years ago before Nashville with Manchester Monarchs, so I would go through there quite a bit. And there there's been times when it's been a it's been a lively building and they've had a lot of support. I think they kind of fluctuate with their fan base. So sometimes it like depending on the day of the week typically could could not be a very busy building, but it was eerie. I mean it was it was weird. It was like it was an afternoon game, uh one and then it was just quiet. And I just think with that unknown sort of uh, information that we were all sort of about to learn um, just, you know, from the, from the U S and the Canadian governments, I think there was just like this, like this lurking sort of eerie, dark energy about the building. And um, the game was just, the game was pretty sloppy and everyone just kind of wanted to get out of there. Uh, so I would say that's what it was like. I think it was just sort of like, uh, you know, it didn't, f- it didn't feel right. Um, it didn't feel right being in there. So, and, and I understand that sports could probably go back to empty stadiums. I mean, I, I have no idea what that will look like or what the plan is for that, but I think it was more or less because the, you know, the, the COVID-19 thing had just kind of hit the mainstream media and people were afraid and yeah, it was just kind of, it, it was scary. So, but luckily, you know, the team did a great job of, of, you know, executing a plan to get us back to Toronto. So I was pretty, pretty grateful for that. Um, and then the easy <laughs> I don't know. I think I would say that I, this is a true story. When I was in Sarnia playing for the Sting, I graduated high school on time as a junior hockey player. And, uh, my parents and my team were like, you know, you did really well in high school. You should, you should try to do some college classes. And, um, I'm not sure if it was a team role. I don't think it was. And I had, I had made like kind of a conscious decision. I was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to do well in high school. Um, education was a big part of our family. Um, 
And my parents were big on that. But I was basically like, all right, I'm going to do well in high school. But beyond that, like, I'm kind of going to fucking shut my brain down. And I just want to be a hockey player. And, uh, you know, it's something that I can't say that I regret it because everything I've done has led me to the point today. And I'm, I'm very happy. But I did take uh, – I had an interest in psychology. And I remember one of the courses was ECE. And um, <laughs> I'll be honest, I probably went to like two or three classes. And I remember going there and it was like 40 women and like two dudes. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to like, you know, I just wanted to play hockey and fucking smoke pot and stuff. So I was like not really interested in going into class. But fast forward down the line, just over the years, sort of reignited my passion for psychology and, you know, development and, and brain health and brain evolution. Um, I come across in my own sort of like time studies about, you know, the, the development of, of essentially like the phases the brain goes through from, from birth to, you know, those young, young ages, like uh, childhood up through the teenage years. And so I think that's probably where it stems through. I just, I've just become really fascinated in, in essentially how our brains work and how and how the how our environment and 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 our, our whole sort of lifestyle can contribute to that. Our uh, our producer Tyler mentions that you won OHL Scholastic Player of the Year one year. Uh, I think it was called the Bobby Smith Award. Yep. yep, it was like a combination of athletics and academics. But yeah, no, I won that when I was in uh, my graduating year of high school. That must not have been easy to to do that, especially like Sarnia's. I mean, it's sort of centrally located, but you'd have a lot of long trips from there too. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember. Like, I have. I struggle remembering a lot of details from that time, but I do remember. Like, we would go to Sault Ste. Marie on like a Wednesday, and then we would come back, and we would have to be in class like the next day. And I remember the new coach they brought in Sean camp was really big on us being in first period. Um, so we couldn't skip first period and, uh, it was tough, but my first year in junior was hard. It was a hard transition. Um, I struggled going from, I was in an all boys private Catholic school run by priests going to public co-ed school um, in a small town of Sarnia. So it was like a completely different shift and I just didn't handle it well. And I would say my second year in Sarnia, um, they made a coaching change and a, and a managing change. And they basically like instilled a ton of rules, which actually helped me for that year. It was, I, you know, I, I can honestly say looking back on my life, that was the one year from about, um, you know, the, the summer when they made the change, and they got really involved in everyone's sort of training. And I, you know, I was focused. I, I wanted to get drafted. I wanted to play for the Canadian teams. And uh, the, the coaches were big on school. And I knew I was capable of doing well. So I, I was focused, man. I wanted to get drafted. I wanted to do well in school. And it was almost like I made that decision. I'm like, all right, I'm going to hunker down and, and accomplish these goals. And then once I did that, then I lifted the reins back off and kind of went off the rails again. But yeah, I'm just looking, that would have been your draft year and you got, you ended up getting picked in the third round, 71st yeah. overall. Yeah. 
You ended up actually getting picked by Dallas. I thought it was Nashville, but did you get traded after that point or no? I was drafted oh, I by see. Dallas you in went the to, third round. Right. And then you went to LA. Yep. I was drafted by Dallas in the third round. I played, uh, I played for a year in their American League system in Iowa. Iowa Stars. I played like 20 games in the East Coast League to start the year. So I actually got suspended my in the American Hockey League um, for jumping off the bench and instigating a fight. We were in like an exhibition game in like Quad City. And uh, my first coach, Dave Allison, for the Iowa Stars, they were, you know, I could feel the heat was on coming in. I mean, I got into some significant trouble my last year of junior, which the Dallas team became made aware about and uh, I got in some legal trouble that I've, I've kind of never really talked about, but so everything, I could just feel the tension. And, you know, I think I came in with a bit of a bad attitude, like not horrible, but I, uh, I remember my coach looking at me and he was like, you know, I hear you have a reputation for starting fights and not finishing them. Um, (laughs) and, uh, oh yeah, just like complete rat and junior. Um, because I just didn't feel like, like I wasn't ready to fight. Like I wasn't ready to fight. Didn't want to fight that much. I wanted to score. I wanted to stir it up and, and, and get points. And, but like, I, I wouldn't really go out of my way to like square off and fight with a guy. And that was at a time when, you know, the fighting was pretty predominant. I was always compared to like Steve Downey and Steve Downey loved to fight. And, but anyways, coming in, my coach was like, if you think you're going to come in here and like stir up all these men and not fight, like you're not going to play. And like, he was, a, he was a good, he was a good guy, but he, he said that. And so I'm like, fuck, all right. And, I, and I, I wanted to fight anyway by that time. I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm probably good enough to um, play in the NHL, uh, but I'm probably not good enough to not bring like a, a serious physical element with the fighting and the and the shit's disturbing. So I, I was like, all right. So some guy got hammered right in front of our bench. We were playing in some small rink in, in uh, Iowa, buried from behind. And I just was all fired up and I was calling a guy off the ice cause I was going to go after him and fight him. And like, I, I left probably a little bit too early and, uh, went over instigated the fight. So they sent it in and I ended up getting 10 games and then the team appealed it. And like, tried to say that it was a line change. So I got six games. So my six, six games in the American league, especially back then was like a lifetime, you know, the schedule so like light at the beginning of the season because it's all focused on practice. So I swear the six games took like a month to play. <laughs> and, uh, I was sitting there thinking, and at that time it was the last year when you could only dress 11 forwards per game. So you could only dress 11 and six. And, uh, you know, we had like, you know, a few extra forwards and a few rookies. And I was like so paranoid about getting sent down to the East Coast League just because of, especially back then, it's like if you played in the East Coast League, like you're you're doomed and like you're never going to get back out. And it's like the biggest stain on your career. And um, I was like, I didn't want to get sent down. And I didn't know what was going to happen. And they never really talked to me. And I'm thinking like, oh, you know maybe they'll maybe they'll keep me and then ended up going down so i played a year for iowa and idaho and then that summer they traded my rights to la yeah you got traded for laurie tukanen he was yeah. actually a pretty good he was a he was a good player he was picked 11th overall in the draft so he's yeah i remember i remember when it happened like i had no clue i do remember that um i know that 
Dallas's farm system was expiring in Iowa and the team had been sold, I believe to, I don't know. Anyways, they got sold. And so Dallas had to like, they had like two spots on Iowa. They had a few spots on, mm. um, Da, 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 Manitoba because James Neal went up there for a few games and then they, they, they had like maybe a couple spots on Chicago I can't remember the exact teams but they were trying to decide what to do with all their prospects and um, I do remember hearing like you know there might be some trades or you know most of the guys might be sent down to Idaho to start just because if they can't make other American League teams so I think it was a combination of that and then a combination of my behavior off the ice my first year. Just it was like one thing after another. And looking back, like I didn't see the problem with it because I was in, I, I was so oblivious to what was going on. And then, but to what like my like as a twenty year old rookie, like I was just I was reckless. And I think they could see that, and they probably, you know, had to make a tough decision. So. Well, so Rich, like you've taken like a, a mentorship role with the Marlies, obviously. If you could like go back and talk to that guy at that point, yeah. like what would you tell him? Well, I did have a like. I remember there was one player, BJ Crombie, who was a couple years older than me, and uh, he did try to he did try to get through to me. I mean, he you know he was he was like he was your normal kind of hockey player. He liked to have a beer here and there, but. I would probably like, I just wasn't ready to listen. So what I would, I would say is like, you know, I I've asked myself that question and I've had, I've actually done like therapeutic techniques of like, you know, write your younger self a letter. Um, I, I wouldn't change any of it. I mean, I know that's crazy to say, but if I would have went back in time and would have said, listen, man, like all the you know all the cocaine and and smoking and drinking and you know reckless behavior not to mention like all that plus all the people i was affecting you know i had two younger brothers who always looked up to me my parents who you know gave everything that they ever had to my brothers and i so i was impacting them immediately and then it just goes off from there you know the the, the organizations that took invested in me and like actually took i remember les jackson who was head of uh head of um you know scouting for the dallas stars and who's probably responsible for having me there he would write these type typewritten letters and i remember i would like looking back on them he was talking about finding balance in your life and you know it's okay to like run wild sometimes but then you got to balance it out and I just remember back then being like, why does this guy keep writing me about balance? And like, I swear to God, at first I thought he was talking about my balance on the ice, like my actual, <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, I, you never know, right? I was 20 years old, but I would just say like, I would just say, man, like buckle up because like, how could I go change it? I, 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 you know, I wouldn't want any other existence. I mean, at any point in time, you know, I could have died a million times over, uh, could have, could have easily lost my hockey career, got into legal trouble and it, this would all be gone. But, you know, luckily I didn't, but at the same time too, going through everything that I've been through and that I continue to go through every day, like this is a daily thing. This isn't, this isn't wake up one day and like you do a couple things, go to rehab and it's over. But, 
it's given me a perspective on life that I can literally say like, you know, the best, I mean, the miracle of everything is that I'm sober and, um, you know, the most important person, um, the person who needs to hear that most every day is me. Like if I forget that it's over, I'm so close. I, I, I'm whatever. It's been, a, it's been a while since I've drank or used, but what I did yesterday won't keep me sober and it won't keep me happy today. So it's a daily thing. And I would just say like, to the younger version of myself, man, just, <laughs> you know, I would just pray for him. Can't, I, I, I literally wouldn't change anything. I'm, but, I'm you know, like, the reason why yeah, I do ahead. speak like this openly, sorry to cut you off, is that, and I never thought that I would ever be talking about anything publicly like this, but the reason I was taught early on in recovery, it was that if you want to keep what you have, you have to give it away. And to me, that means... If, you know, if I need to share a couple of things that aren't exactly, aren't exactly the brightest topics about life, if there's someone out there that can hear it and maybe, you know, it plants a seed for them to make a change, um, then it's worth it, right? Like, that's the whole thing is like, you've got to help others. Like, that's, that's what I've learned up until now. And that's what the people that, that I've surrounded myself with is... You know, how can I help you get what you want without anything in return? And and that that for me is like where it's at. Is is what you're doing with the Marlies right now though, is it is it kind of about paying it forward? Is it about like like how do you view your role? Yeah. You kind of you joked about not playing a lot. You <laughs> played fifteen you played fifteen games last year, sixteen games this year. Yeah. You probably could have went to Europe and played a lot more and you, you know, I, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know about the finances and everything, but like, how? Like, it, 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 why? Why is being here and playing for the Marlies and mentoring young guys? Why is that what you want to do? Yeah, I can. I can answer that question as best I can. I um, I think first and foremost that when I first came to Toronto, uh, obviously I was attracted to coming back to Toronto and and um you know, coming off getting bought out by Nashville was, was like, you know, it was, it was tough, brutal, but I had a good feeling from Kyle Dubas. My initial talk with Kyle Dubas, he was the assistant general manager at the time. And, uh, Mike Babcock was scheduled to be the Maple Leafs coach. And, and, you know, my, I, I could sniff out the fact that the Leafs lineup was going to be vulnerable and that I, I could have had a chance to play games. So there was a huge, a huge attraction of coming back to my home city. Like I grew up right at Woodbine and Danforth on the East side and the Maple Leafs were, were literally everything to me as a kid. Um, so there was that. And then things just started to change as I got back. I mean, I got to meet Sheldon Keith, who is my coach on the Marlies for, um, you know, almost five years, four years. And, uh, between Kyle and Sheldon and then, um, you know, they, they, their message to me was, we want to see you back in the NHL and we want you to play for the Leafs and anything we're going to, I'm a, Sheldon was like, I'm going to do everything I can to get you back in the NHL. And I think in turn, right. It's that whole sort of like give and take is that they were going to get a player that was going to be an older player that, you know, had a, had a pretty, you know, couple good years in the NHL and I'd hopefully rub off on the younger kids. And then in turn, it would benefit me. I would play in the National Hockey League and, you know, make, make more money and it would help me out. And then 
I did have a chance to leave after my first year. I had a chance to leave. Um, we lost out in the, I think we lost out in the conference final to Hershey. And uh, I think, you know, it was pretty, it was a great year. But if you look back on all the teams that I've been a part of with the Marlies, I would say that year probably had the most talent out of all of them. And especially with most of the talent being rookies, like first year guys like William Nylander and Hyman and Kapanen, among many others, it would have been pretty, pretty cool to see that team win a Calder Cup. And that was the goal of that team. And I wanted to obviously win and my role as a player was, was pretty, was a large role. I played a lot of big minutes for that, that year. And, um, a number of teams like, you know, called my agent and there was a temptation to maybe, I, I didn't know what would happen as far as like, you know, moving up. And cause I, I always want to play in the NHL and I didn't know if, you know, I would fit in with, um, the Leafs moving forward and their lineup getting stronger. And uh, they had just signed Matt Martin, I believe, which mm-hmm. was, you know, similar player. Um, and uh, at the time, I was honestly like, you know, I, f- I felt like I was on par with Matt Martin. I didn't think he was really much of an upgrade on myself. Um, and, and, you know, I, lo- I like Matt as a guy and we've, we've had a number of fights. I just felt that I was like, all right, well, if maybe, you know, there's an opportunity, but then I just came to the decision where I didn't want to, I didn't want to go to another organization and, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's something that I think in the past, maybe I asked myself, like, what if I would have went to this team and played a few more games, but then I wanted to start to build something here. Like I, I I wanted to start to really get to know Kyle Dubas and Sheldon Keefe and, and really become a player that, um, I mean, my, my value, I think, uh, I think, you know, everyone in, in the locker room knows what I bring, but I just wanted to start something like special and, and, and become one of those guys that can be counted on to be a leader in the room. And I, I didn't know what it, if, what it would look like getting called back up to the Leafs, but I wasn't really concerned about that. And, um, I just made a conscious decision that, you know, I was just going to to do whatever it took to be here. And uh, it's it's become everything I could have wanted. And I think when you asked me the question earlier about, you know, is it about, is paying it forward part of my, my thing? And yeah, it is. It, it is. But it's also, it's also a job, right? I mean, I'm very lucky to play hockey and get paid very well. And um so it's it, it's as much a part of my recovery as it is my love for the game as it is for me as a guy. Like I also, you know, the team's never taken advantage of me in the sense that they know that you know I'm I'm very loyal and want to be here, but they've also never made me feel like they've taken me for granted. So I'm very grateful for that. But I think that um, it's been it's been awesome. Just like fucking every day, you wake up and. Uh, everyone's so much younger now in the American League than they used to be because the American League used to just be full of guys that were trying to like you know patch together games and and you know make and um now it's just like it's such a young young environment and I love like I like it I love it a lot. Well, so Rich, you kind of touched on it there. Um, 
how did your relationship kind of grow with with Kyle Dubas and with Sheldon Keefe as the years went on? Like, how did mm-hmm. trust build up between the two of you? I also wondered, like you mentioned it a bit, like your first impressions of those guys and and kind of how it's developed now that you've been here for a mm-hmm. while and, and become such like a fixture of that organization. My first impression, like I said, of Kyle was I was, you know, we, we had a long conversation um, years ago and he essentially, you know, poured, poured his heart out and, and what his philosophies were um, and how he really believed in, you know, the spirit of the team. And, and it, I always find it fascinating when, um, you know, you, I take a temperature on, on sort of like what's talked about in the media and publicly about Kyle and his, you know, the way he structures his teams and how they're very calculated with highly powered offenses. And he's as much a believer in that as he is a believer in players that have character and players that, that care and show up every day. And sometimes, you know, you maybe sacrifice a little bit of skill to get the enthusiasm and to get the, the grit that you need. And you just look at him employing a player like me for so long. I think that speaks volumes to what he's about. So, and then with Sheldon, um, I, you know, my second conversation was with Sheldon over the phone and, and it was, it wasn't like a, a long conversation because, you know, you can't really get to know someone well. And just from the very beginning, I could tell Sheldon was extremely competitive guy and, uh, you know, is not not an impulsive coach. He he digests a lot of things, and I think he the things that he says and does they are very specific. And he doesn't really say something without meaning it. So I really appreciated that. And just over the years, I think it became a matter of um, trust. I mean, it came out of trust. They've given me every freedom to kind of be the person I I want to be and can be. They've never once tried to, you know, censor me or, or sort of force me to be something that I'm not, um, you know, and I've gotten in trouble a few times and, and I've, you know, I've had to be reprimanded by, by the team kind of behind closed doors for things that aren't a big deal, but I'm very grateful. Like looking back, you know, I think that they've, they've certainly given me lessons that I've needed to become, Cause I always wanted to be a player that played long. Like, I mean, it's been tough, right? You know, like you look on pretty much every team other than, you know, early on, maybe in the Manchester days when, when I was like a younger prospect and got, you know, whatever played on second, third lines, you know, I've every year has been, I've had to come into a camp and, and struggle to make teams and, and, and play on like fourth lines and find a way to contribute and, I think at times I've played up to my potential. At times I haven't, but this whole time here with the Marlies in the organization, um, no matter how things have gone with my ice time or my role on the team, the one thing that's been consistent is just like the open line of communication between Kyle and Sheldon. And then, you know, moving forward now into present day, uh, Lawrence Gilman and Greg Moore, um, there's just always been that. I think, you know, I think the thing is, is that I bring a consistent energy every day and it might not look the exact same, but I think they know I'm going to show up and I'm going to be prepared to essentially do what I need to do to, 
to be a leader and just be a part of a team. And a lot of that has to do with my sobriety. I mean, there's, it's, it's, you know, I, I hit the repeat button every day and I know that it's a daily reprieve that I have from this disease of alcoholism, but it all lends to me being able to compete and show up as a hockey player and an athlete every day. And, um, I, I, I'd like to think that, that all those people that we've been talking about, they see that and I think they respect it. Rich, do you know what, what your plans are for next year? Are you going to be back with the Marlies again? Um, I mean, you know, in the past I've, I've made good predictions and I think I've been a little bit outspoken about <laughs> what I want to have happen, um, yelling it to whoever will listen, but yeah, I, w- I would like to play again. Uh, I feel great. Um, I had a, I had a high ankle sprain this year, which kind of interrupted briefly, probably the best hockey I've played in a long time. I think if you ask, you know, people that follow the team, um, I've probably been this year, just, I felt like, you know, last year was a tough year for me. Last year was a struggle. Uh, there was a number of things that were going on in my personal life that I think affected me. Um, the biggest thing I think was, you know, my grandmother, my mom's mom, Mary Fermani, um, she passed away and we were super close. Like that, you know, I could go on and on about her. Um, and she ended up passing away last year and it was just, it was tough, man. Like I, I, I constantly was going to see her in palliative care and in hospitals all year and that, that weighed on me. And then I think it was just one of those things where there's so many bodies and so many players and I probably didn't. I probably didn't play as well as I could have at times for Sheldon to kind of get me in. And that's why I end up didn't play very many games and didn't produce at all offensively. But I think I, you know, I, I found a way to, to add leadership to the team behind the scenes. And then this year, I think I just shed a lot of baggage that I was carrying. Um, like I said, man, like, you know, I'm not perfect. I know I let some things get to me and, I just kind of came in with a clean slate and uh, finished, you know, I showed up in shape again as I always do. And so I feel good, man. I want to keep playing. Um, Like I said, I mean, it's not really, as far as hockey goes, nobody can really tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. But I mean, if it were up to me, I would play again for the Marlies next year. I would come into to camp for the Maple Leafs. Like the insane thing is, is I'll say this out loud. I don't really give a fuck what anybody thinks, but in my mind, I I'm like preparing to play, like try to play in the NHL. And, and as far fetched as that may seem, I, I can't physically not like program my mind to think that way because I just won't be motivated. Like I, I can be motivated to, I think I do a good job of staying present when I'm with the Marlies and, and grounded in my surroundings and, you know, not look beyond where I am, but you know, the amount of working out that I do and, and the day-to-day um, sort of stress I put my body through, like my goal is, is to play in the NHL and not to, not to not be present uh, on the steps along the way. And so that takes me where it takes me, but I've always told Kyle and I've always told Sheldon and I've always told myself and my parents that as soon as I lose the motivation to want to do that, I'll, I'll retire. I mean, I will retire. I'll step aside. There's a lot of things that I want to do with my life and that I will do, but I still have that fire, man. Like when I get healthy scratched, I'm pissed off. You know, I don't, I don't show it. I think I have a really mature way of processing these things or, 
you know, when I go out there in like an AHL game and it's like a Tuesday and I'm still motivated to go run people through the boards and, and want to, and want to play well and score and fight and come into practice the next day and work out. And as soon as I lose that motivation, then, then it'll be over. But I don't know, man, it's burning hard inside of me. Like I can't, I, I would be selling myself short if I retired right now. So I'm, you've been with the, the Marlies and the Leafs organization for five years and you've been with Kyle and, and Sheldon that whole time has, has kind of having that relationship with them and watching them, has that put a seed in your mind that, you know what, maybe I want to be a coach one day. Maybe I want to work in management one day. Like, do you see things in, in the way that they operate and what they do that potentially that could be part of your future down the line? Um, it's certainly something that, um, I can remember making kind of the conscious shift a few years ago, uh, and knowing, you know, knowing who I was surrounded by, but yeah, I mean, watch, watching Sheldon and, and his evolution and him, you know, him solidifying himself as, as sort of the leader of um, the Maple Leafs and certainly was the leader of the Marlies. I, I can't say that has, does that make me want to coach? Um, I can say that if there's an opportunity to be involved in hockey where I could, you know, maybe um, help players individually and um and sort of evolve that way yeah i think i think i do want to be involved in hockey i i, I can honestly say I, i'll i'll be involved in hockey till the day i die i mean it's it's one of my true loves um no matter no matter how many other things i i get into and, and interests that i have and it, i always come back to hockey it's like it's it's almost like it's like, uh, it's a part of me, man. It's like, it's right inside of me and I can't fake that. Um, but I, I certainly do, you know, watch the people around me and I, and I, you know, I study people all the time and, and kind of put together what I think works and what I think doesn't. And, and, you know, that, that goes way, way beyond, uh, I mean, like I was watching the last dance last night, I think like the rest of the world is right now. <laughs> with the Chicago Bulls and you know I knew a little bit about Phil Jackson and that whole sort of thing but I think it was cool to see how his sort of energy and his aura counterbalanced like those personalities on the Bulls right like you got Jordan and Rodman and Pippen and um, even their general manager sort of they were the masters of creating order out of chaos and then Phil Jackson was there and he's talking about like you know, um, mindfulness and, and being present in the moment and meditation and kind of, you know, that whole oneness. And I found that interesting. I think that's something that I could probably, you know, bring, that would be something that I would integrate into like coaching methods or management methods if I choose to go that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can't tell you exactly what, what it would look like, but down the road, I think it's something that I would be interested in. Rich, I thought the part when uh, he had the bulls doing yoga, I was yeah. just watching that. I was just like, oh my God, that's that's so different. And it got me to thinking like you you mentioned like working with a lot of the younger players and it, it seemed like in the those early years, like you, you kind of had a bit of a bond with like Kasperi Kapanen, William Nylander. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I'm curious about that. Like those guys are are young. They're, they're from Sweden, Finland, mm-hmm. different places. 
Like yeah. what what made you gravitate to those guys at, at that point? So young, so new to the North America in some ways, obviously both are from here, but yeah. what did you like about those guys at that point? Um well I think the big thing is that I try to you know, and you never you never in anything in life, wherever you are, you work on a team or at a company, you're not gonna click with everybody. But I think um you know, it was my first year moving back to Toronto and uh, first year in the organization. And I just think that, you know, we had a, I had a lot, a lot in common with a lot of those guys. And I think the big thing too is like, um, I think that if you were to ask them sort of, they, they would ask me a lot of questions, you know, they'd ask me a lot of questions that probably a lot of people were afraid to ask. And I think that I gave them a lot of answers that, um, you know, like, how, how do you know, right? You come into Toronto and there's a lot of different, you know, there's a lot of different personalities and people in this city who can come at you, especially when you're a talented young hockey player. You know, people want you to go to this club and that club and this party, da, 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 da. And it was like, you know, I've... I've been through that mainly because I grew up in Toronto and a um, I'm just older. And I think they found it interesting that I had these sort of stories and that I wasn't afraid to tell them. And, you know, I trusted them and then it just kind of rolled from there. Like I, you know, I've been, uh, I also too, like I hung out with them a lot outside of the rink. Like we would go work out or I remember Nylander would come box with me a little bit. And I just think that, I think that it was probably just different from things they were used to. I mean, Casperi Kapanen and I are, you know, very close friends today. And we just, it just started back of just, you know, liking the same stuff, like liking the same music. And I feel like, you know, I have tons of different friends, different age groups, like younger, older, um, you know, male, female, whatever, transgender, and I don't know, I just, that's the big thing about my life is like connecting with people and like taking an interest and, and really like, you know, if you, you meet someone, it's like really getting to know people, not just like, you know, playing on the same hockey team and then you go your separate ways. It's like, no, like, what are you about? Where did you come from? You know, let's, let's fucking like, let's get to know each other. And I think, I don't know, that's just kind of how I remember it. Well, what's like the advice that you would give them or what was the, what was your best advice to them at that point? <laughs> um, my best advice. I don't know. You'd probably have to ask them that. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I, I listen, I, I think that, you know, I don't think I've screwed any of them up. I don't know. I don't, I, you'd have to ask them. I mean, I think it would be a pretty big ego trip for me to start going like that, but Rich, do you have any do you have any insight or interesting stories about Nylander and Kapanen? Like, obviously, you know nothing that you don't want to tell. But like it, it I I think that fans and even media have a hard time getting to know guys mm -hmm. sometimes just when you know the only yeah. interaction is the camera and their face mm -hmm. or whatever. Like, what do you what do you see behind the scenes with both those guys? Uh, with Cappy, I mean, like Cappy's got. Um, you know, one of the coolest things that I saw about Cappy was when his younger brother came to visit him um, from Sweden or uh, from Finland. And, uh, you know, like, like everybody, 
um, you know, he just, he is such a loving guy. Like he, he's got such a big heart. And when you see him around different people and, and the friends that he keeps and he's just such like a, he wants everyone to kind of like be good and have a good time. And that's what really made me gravitate towards him. You know, when, especially as a, as a younger player, um, he certainly didn't lack any confidence as far as like, you know, coming into the room. And so I think, you know, that, and, you know, we've had some, I think, you know, I will say this is that I think the thing that probably throws guys off when they play with me or whatever, meet people now, because, um, as a, as a way of self-preservation, I've clearly made it a note, you know, there's a huge part of me that, that authentically wants to help people and wants people to benefit from my experience. And I would love to help people achieve, you know, whatever it is that they're after. But a huge part of it too, like, you know, being honest and being open about the sobriety thing and struggling with mental illness over the years is that the more people that know about it, the less opportunities that I have. Like, I'm not going, you know what I mean? It's like I draw a line in the sand and I set boundaries immediately. And there's a very selfish aspect to that because if I don't stay sober, then there is no, there is no hockey. There is no, you know, family, there is no me. And, um, but I think that when guys come to play and if they hear about that beforehand, they might think that I'm just like some boring guy who doesn't like go out and party or go to concerts. And I think, you know, looking back, if you were to ask Cappy or Willie or any of the guys, um, you know, I like to have fun, man. Like I like to party. Like I go out to bars, I go to, I go to clubs, I go to concerts and, you know, I can, I can go anywhere and be myself based on, you know, the fact of that I'm doing what I need to do in my own time to be, you know, mentally and spiritually fit. I think the thing that probably, uh, maybe endured them, um, maybe got them to think whatever that, that I was cool is that, you know, they, they see that part of me without the drugs and the alcohol and they see that I can go to bars and clubs and, you know, have fun. And all of a sudden I'm not some like military guy that just cares about like working out and, and eating well and like whatever and fighting and playing hockey and going to bed early. I mean, that's a huge other part of me as well, but I think I've achieved some sort of balance and maybe redefined what sobriety can look like for somebody who's trying to, you know, you know, still have fun, man. And, and that was my biggest fear. I thought that the, I thought that it was going to suck. Like when they were t the second time I went into rehab, I was like, all right, well, I get it. Everything they told me the first time is true. And, you know, it's going to be boring and it's going to be like taking medicine every day, but I'm ready because I just, I want to live. I want to live. And if my life's boring, I'm willing to live with that as long as I stay sober and I don't kill myself or kill anybody. But then, you know, fast forward a couple of years and then learning how to have fun. It's a slow process, but at some point I just, dude, I just learned how to have fun again. And I think maybe that's what's taken me so long in this, in this conversation to explain is that I think, you know, Cappy and Willie, they could see that I'm a fun person and I, and I have that balance and I can be a good time and still stay sober. So maybe that's what what sort of drew them to me.
Well, and, and Rich, I'm curious, like you mentioned uh, a bit when we started just about keeping a schedule. Mm-hmm. I wonder like how much that's helped with sobriety, just kind of structuring your day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think as a hockey player, I think the number one thing you'll hear about when you hear about guys retire and, and how they struggle getting off a schedule because it, now like we get an email every night, right? Like we get an email saying the, and this was my first uh, exposure to it. I think in Nashville, they, in Nashville, they would like, they somehow had a way to access the calendar on your phone, but with the Leafs, everything's done through email and, and the Marlies. So it's very scheduled, very regimented. Um, and it's very well done. So, but if you take, like, I remember when I was in Renaissance, which is a treatment center, that's where I really learned the benefit of scheduling and, and really writing things out because, you know, addicts and alcoholics, they struggle. And I like, I'll speak for myself. I struggle with the unknowns. And even when I have like, even when I want to plan free time or, you know, sort of like whatever can happen, I'll literally you know, I, that's like designed because I just, my anxiety goes away when I'm on a schedule. So, you know, I, I think that that is, that's probably why I do it. Also too, I have a cousin who's uh, epileptic and, you know, just watching her over the years, uh, we're pretty close. And so I've got to know a little bit about that sort of, um, you know, condition and, schedule is massive for someone with epilepsy. I don't know if you guys have any familiarity oh. with it, but essentially like, you know, not to go into too much detail, but if, if someone with epilepsy gets thrown off their schedule, it can trigger seizures quite, you know, that, that can be a major trigger. So if they're, you know, they're on a set schedule every day of like, you know, wake up, go to work, eat, da 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 da, da and then that gets thrown off it can, it can have a really negative impact on someone with epilepsy. So I've, I've seen that sort of really close to me and, um, I just see how she's very regimented. So I've kind of adapted that myself. All right. I'm going to take this in a bit of a different direction. Your boy, uh, Taylor Prestige or yeah, I, I'm not sure how to pronounce. Yeah. Prestige. Yeah. He's, he's working with you on a movie that you're involved in. Like, I don't know really hardly anything about this it's yeah. it, it's it's like auto autobiographical is that right um so yes yeah, s- somewhat i mean yeah so taylor and i met through a mutual friend uh about a year ago i would say maybe a little over a year ago and um so he's a filmmaker with his uh he's got a filmmaking partner harris uh usanovich and they made a film a couple of years ago on Andrew Harris, the running back for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and Mauro Ranallo, the Showtime boxing commentator. Anyway, so Taylor and I met, and he had read an article that was written by my brother Matthew um, that mm-hmm. was published by The Athletic, as you guys mm-hmm. recall. Yeah. Um, Amazing article, yeah. And that was really early on for us at The Athletic. I remember uh, yeah. working with your brother on that. Yeah, it was. Pretty, you know what? My brother pretty... gave me a gift with it frame that's actually here on my wall. The Recovery, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Clune Brothers by Matt Clune. I remember reading that, and he didn't even – he had sent me like something in an email that resembled that article. And then like time had passed and he must've, 
you know, went back at it. And I remember the first time I read that, I was just, you know, I was in tears like immediately because that was just, you know, my brother Matt was probably the closest person at that time to my addiction. And to speak from his perspective, I think that that article, I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet people over the years that, that have read that. And, you know, the sad part about addiction and alcoholism um, is that it affects everybody. I mean, the addict is the addict, but then you look at the people around them. And so it impacts more people. And I think a lot of people were impacted by that article because everyone's kind of got someone that in their life to certain to a certain degree. So Taylor had read that article and, um, you know, being a filmmaker, I think he was inspired by it. And he was like, you know, would you ever want to share this kind of story in a film format? And uh, I had had when I was on Nashville, I remember, I think someone, I want to say at TSN, I had, somebody had reached out to me to do sort of something similar, like a film, um, like a feature film type thing, but it involved another player and it involved like an older player who was retired that I'm not sure had sort of found sobriety. And I just wasn't into that. I didn't, it didn't really feel right to me. And then over the years, I've met people that have wanted to do things and I've just sort of like, you know, put it off and just wasn't ready. And then when I met Taylor, coincidentally, another, um, you know, another production company had reached out and said, you know, would you like to share your story in like a film format? So it was kind of two, two opportunities. And I just looked at it as like, you know, maybe it's sort of the universe's way of speaking to me being like, you know, you should explore that. and. Um, we got to know each other, you know, over about a, a month period and just sort of threw ideas back and forth. And then I, I said, yeah, like, let's do it. And it's been, it's been, it's been, uh, it was, it was interesting. You know, we, the bulk of the film is shot around a one-on-one -on -one interview um, that we shot in Guelph at the River Run Center, uh, which is like a pretty big theater there. Um, very cool looking theater. And then they just sort of built the story out. They built the story out with people that I had kind of referenced. And there's a, there's a few, you know, there's a number of different, um, there's a number of different people in it, but I wouldn't say that it's like directly about me in a sense that I think it's, it's an inclusive story about, you know, family and, and, and obviously addiction. And I, I get pretty candid about, you know, sort of the transition period between um you know you know backtrack 10 years and we get into like you know that moment in time when my brother was driving me um you know from boston uh, from massachusetts to toronto and i was you know in heavy heavy withdrawal state which uh you know that's just something that it happened and um you know, every day I make a living amends to my brother just based on my lifestyle. I mean, there's nothing I can do to take it back. But, you know, there's some things that my brother saw that he'll never unsee again. Um, so I think that inspired him to, to obviously write the the recovery, uh, the story that was published by your guys' um, website. And then Taylor's just kind of taken that moment in time and then expanded it into a to a feature film thing. And, and, and it's, you know, there's a lot of different elements to it. I think it's not all about addiction. It's not all about mental illness. Um, you know, I talk about, 
you know, I talk about my journey through hockey and then, um, you know, I'd say there's different sides to me about it. And I was kind of uncomfortable at first. Like I certainly, you know, whenever your name is on something and it's essentially like about you, it, it kind of, you know, it's a little off putting, but it's the same reason why years ago when I first spoke publicly about, you know, all this stuff is that if people watch it and they connect with it and they find a little bit of hope and, you know, maybe can point them to a way out of like a dark time, um, then great. Like it's just, you know, kind of my way of paying it forward a little bit. And uh, I'm really impressed with the job Taylor and Harris did and then the rest of the film team. I mean, they're extremely creative, talented guys and, you know, they've, they've put a lot of work into it and, um, you know, to see them kind of come, come to the end of the road and see it finished because, you know, those, like I'm watching the last dance last night and now, you know, this is my first experience in like a documentary type format. Um, and I've been watching these guys sort of gather footage and, you know, deal with different people on how to accumulate all this footage and put it into a film. And I'm watching the last dance and I'm like, wow, <laughs> I'm like, this is a major, major budgeted <laughs> monster. And it's just like my appreciation for these types of things. is just gone through the roof. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, it's really like, it's a, it's a massive puzzle to put together. So, so the, the movie comes out this week. Is that right? Um, it won't come out this week. Uh, tonight, they sent me a trailer, like a two-minute trailer that okay. they just finished. And uh, they've asked me to post it on my social media accounts, like Instagram and Facebook. So I'm going to do that. So it'll be kind of like whatever, you know, the immediate people who kind of follow on those things. I'm not as active as I used to be, to be honest. I'm just It doesn't interest me as much as it used to. But um, I think that social media you know, serves a purpose now more than ever as far as you look at the awareness being raised for, you know, trying to raise money for PPE at this time in the COVID-19. And I think people are looking for like inspiration anywhere they can find it on social media. So I don't know, maybe people will see it and it's, you know, it's only a two minute trailer, but as far as the actual film, um, there should be an announcement coming shortly of where people can see it. And that I can say is doesn't necessarily involve me right now, but um, it should be announced shortly. So it'll be cool. I think it'll be nice to uh, to see it kind of finished and and you know locked into a final edit. Well, so before we wrap, Rich, like we've taken so much of your time, and this has been awesome having you. Um, but one thing I, I wrote down that I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. um, that I feel it would be. A mistake if we didn't ask you about the Calder Cup run. Yeah. Winning a Calder Cup. What's like your favorite memory? Like when 25 years from now, when you're looking back, mm-hmm. what's the memory you think you'll remember of winning a Calder Cup? My favorite memory of winning a Calder Cup. I think it was just seeing we – it was like when Ben Smith grabbed the cup and – that first, like, I mean, the building was nuts because we won, you know, we won five, five, one or whatever it was. So the building was just erupting the whole night. And it was like, it was like a, you know, like to keep the roof on that place. And it was just, it was wild and loud. 
and like the way that the uh, Coca-Cola Coliseum is just built, it's like such an intimate venue and it just have all that energy. And then when Benny raised the cup and it was just like that roar that came above the crowd, um, just that roar and like to see everybody just kind of on the ice, like the players and the training staff and and just to watch everybody raise the cup in their own way and just like the like the moment before they got it to see their faces and it, it was just like you can never you can't replicate that anywhere and then Benny passed the cup to me um second which was like awesome I mean I wasn't really expecting that but I, it's just that just to see the reaction of the different people that have like worked so hard and and all the different you know and all the different job descriptions and the players and you know just like the front like everybody everybody got a chance to lift it and those moments man and the looks on everybody's faces those are the things i'll never forget so rich we just wanted to thank you for coming by this was like like jonah said is fantastic um and wish you well with the movie and wish you well with uh training in quarantine and wish you well with the rest of your career too and you know i'm sure we'll we'll see you around a rink at some point when we're all back back in them again oh yeah thanks for having me it's been great talking guys all right well that was rich clune that was awesome james like he is such an interesting guy and he's so honest like he you always just feel like he's telling you exactly what he thinks so that was that was fun yeah no it's that was it's one of those things you have a guest like that on and we could have went for like three hours and like got into everything. And, you know, he starts talking about his career and yeah, I don't, Rich is, he, he's, um, I would say he's, he's pretty unique. Wouldn't you? And in terms of the players that, that you've covered in your career, like he's just, um, Oh yeah. He's one of he's, one. He's ridiculously approachable. He's very comfortable in his own skin and, um, you know, and I, I got to know his family a little bit because his his brother Matt wrote that story for us, and just you know, really really impressed with with the family and everything. And 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 the other thing too is that Rich grew up kind of in the neighborhood where I live. Um, so I and he he bought a house around here, so I see him around sometimes too. And um, he's the same person whether you see him at the arena in in his job or around town or whatever. And you know, just um, you can see why the Leafs have really um, have really kind of embraced him and he's embraced them and it's it's been a, a good partnership. And, you know, my question, I was just curious if he ever had like a burning desire to go somewhere and play more and be make, make more of an on-ice impact with a team because most of the time players don't stay with an AHL team as long as he has. And, you know, I think that part of what makes him unique is is part of why he's he's kind of embraced the role that he's in right now with the Marlies. Yeah. Well, and the stability, I think, has probably been good for the organization. Like, he's just someone who's around for their young players to kind of, like he was saying, like, all those guys just constantly ask him questions. And, like, the good thing with him is, like, he clearly, he's not going to just give them a politically correct answer. He's going to tell them what he thinks. He's going to base that on his experience. And I thought it was, like, interesting what he mentioned about Kyle Dubas and just how he values that kind of personality around the team. And obviously, they want to call their cup together. He remains with the organization. I can't see why they wouldn't continue to keep him around. And like you were talking about with the future, he feels like some sort of development coach for sure. Just someone to have around your organization to do basically what he's doing and just not play. Well, he's so good at the training side of it. Like we didn't get into all that stuff, but he does all kinds of 
boxing and yoga and he's 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 very very advanced in in a lot of that kind of stuff and you know i think that that's that kind of stuff is some of the stuff that he's done with some of the the guys who are with the leafs now like nylander and whatever and it's part of the the bond he has with those players is that the, the training side and what he was able to teach them so yeah i mean it i don't think it would be hard for him at all to move into kind of like a player development role well so he and you mentioned the story um that his brother did um back with the athletic if you're not subscribed to the athletic you can just go to the athletic.com slash leaf report um james you're working on a, a pretty cool story uh about the salary cap which we'll get into next week is there any little tiny preview you can give me and the listeners about that so i did it last year where i look at the salary cap um ramifications for every single team in the nhl and it gives you kind of a wider view than just you know, we've talked a lot about the Leafs on the podcast and their cap situation and what they're going to have to do in the offseason. But when you put them in context with every other team in the league, it's pretty interesting. And one of the big takeaways was I did this, as I said, last year around the same time, uh, a, a little bit later because obviously the playoffs were still ongoing. Um, but when I did it last year, the average NHL team had quite a bit more cap space than they do right now than they're going to if, if the salary cap stays flat, which is where I think it's going to be. So generally speaking, the Leafs aren't going to be the only team that's tight next year if the cap stays flat. There's going to be you know eight or nine teams, and on average, every team in the NHL is going to have three or $4 million less to work with than they did at this time last year, which is not insignificant. Wow. All right. Well, we're going to have to dive like really deep into that because- there's lots of ramifications, and obviously we can talk about the Leafs specifically. Um, anything else you want to touch on uh, before we go? No, I mean, just thanks for all the feedback. I mean, we had, I hope hopefully people saw the the Leafs fan survey, which was fantastic. We haven't talked about that on the podcast. We've had so many guests, we haven't talked about some of the content we've had on the site, but there's a lot of really good stuff. If you go to theathletic.com and go to our Leafs hub, you'll see everything that Jonas and, and Josh Cloak and myself have been writing. I think that, you know, even though we haven't had hockey for, I mean, it's it's been over six weeks now, I, I think our content's been fantastic. And, you know, you look at our comment section, it's still super active. The traffic we're getting, the number of people that are still signing up for subscriptions is hard to believe. The site is still growing through this period. So just have to say thanks to everyone for the support. And if you're a listener to Leaf Report, but not a reader of The Athletic, now is the best time to look at it because we got the free trial going and you can just sign up for 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 free uh, during this period and um, get a get an idea of the kind of content that we produce and and yeah I mean that's the main thing. Well, when we are pod or when we are guestless on the pod again, there's lots that I want to talk to you about that you've written about that I've written about Zach Hyman, Frederick Anderson, the survey. So in the next couple of weeks, we'll get back to. Uh, just you and I, we've got some more guests kind of potentially on the way. Uh, so we will, yeah, we want to have some, we got to have some Leafs players on, right? sounds like that might be a thing. We're doing our best. We're working, we're working, we're making things happen. That'd be fantastic. All right. Well, continue to stay safe, James. Enjoy your quarantine and, uh, we'll talk next week. All right. Thanks, Jonas.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.